If you'd like, you can please turn to Exodus 20, although I'll just be reading this portion and then moving on from there. But we began this morning looking at the Tenth Commandment. In which the Lord says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox or his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. If you were to put that into modern objects of a covetous heart, it might be your neighbor's car or his boat or perhaps his job. Or if you're a younger person, maybe their bike or their toys, maybe their reputation or their popularity. Uh, A man or a woman could covet another young man or woman's looks, their clothes, uh, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their husband, their wife. Someone reminded me this morning that it's even possible just to look at what other people have and how their life has turned out and how your life has turned out, and you can covet what they have. Uh, We saw something on television of a woman uh, meeting another woman. She was just, this one woman was just a housewife and had dedicated her life doing that, but then she met another woman who uh, we talk about men of the world. Well, she was a woman of the world, and she was flying here and doing that, and uh, very up in the business world, and the other woman looked on her with this uh, this discontented look, like, oh, look what I could have had. Look what I could have had. Well, that's the idea of coveting what someone else has and what you don't. You look over your life and what you've given up and what they have and what you don't have. Uh, that can be a very uh, great temptation uh, for a person when they, they see these things. Well, it's really in essence questioning God's goodness, questioning God's sovereignty. Uh, is he really, does he know what he's doing is what we're really saying, isn't it? Well, we want to look now at some, uh, uh, the cause and, and cure, uh, of covetousness. I don't want to make it sound like it's just so easy. You just do one, two, three and you're cured problem with this sin, like so many sins, it's not a cure, it's a battle. It's a lifelong battle. You keep fighting. And as soon as you think you've won, well, it comes right back, just as strong or stronger at times. But what's the main cause of covetousness? Why do people desire more than they have? Well, the main cause is a discontented heart. And so the, the cure is to obtain a contented heart. As Paul said, be content with whatever you have. Uh, The book of Hebrews uh, says in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, When a man sinfully covets more riches than he has, he obviously is not content with the amount he presently has. The word content means sufficient. Uh, When a man is sufficient, he he doesn't need more. Uh, It's like eating. In fact, Paul 
when he's writing to the Philippians, he speaks of, being, of learning to be content. He said, I know how to be a base. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. And then he tells them, uh, as he's speaking of a gift that the church had received, had given to him uh, to minister to the saints in Jerusalem and also to help Paul in his ministry, uh, they had given ample and he had enough. In fact, he says, I have all things and abound and I'm full. Uh, the idea is, is like a, like many of you probably feel right now. You feel full. <laughs> Let's go eat. You say, no, no, I don't want to eat. We don't need to eat now. Now, in a couple of hours, you'll change your mind. But, uh, and that's how covetousness is too. We may think, oh, I'm not covetous anymore. But then just give yourself a few hours and you'll see that it comes right back. But it's like pushing yourself away from the table and you say, I've had enough. I'm content. I'm full. I'm satisfied. But he's saying in in Philippians 4 that in any condition or circumstance, he had learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. He said, well, I get the part about being hungry, but what about being filled? You've learned to be content, being filled. There's no secret to being filled. Uh, When you have more, you'll want more, though. It's not like food in that sense. It's really not like food. Food, you can only have so much. But uh, other things, no, you can have more and more and more is what you want. And the, the truth is, if you're not content with a little, you won't be content with a lot either. So you need to learn them both, as he mentions, to be abased and to abound. Now, clustered around this sin of discontentment are many, many other sins. There's the sin of ignorance. And that can be it can be a sin to be ignorant. Uh, the sin of distrust, distrusting God. Uh, the sin of pride, because you want more because of your pride. Uh, you don't want people to think you're nothing, or you're a loser, or or anything like that. They, in fact, when people want more, they want to impress others. So pride can be there, or the sin of selfishness. You really don't want to share with what you have. You want to keep it for yourself. And so the covetousness grows. And so the cure for covetousness is simply this, to cultivate contentment. I want you to turn over in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, Jesus was speaking, um, and, and it says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's kind of like when you're preaching at the rescue mission. You might get someone to speak out. <laughs> I don't mind that. I, I, I enjoy that. When someone speaks out like that, I'm not asking you to do that, but uh, but it, it, back in this culture, that that would happen. Uh, but here's what this man said in verse 14 or what Jesus responded to him. He said, man, 
Who made me a judge or an arbiter, arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. He saw the problem here, didn't he? Covetousness. For one's life, he says, does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. But you see, this man, that's exactly what he thought. I need somebody to settle this because he's going to get away with this. My brother, he's not going to divide the inheritance or he's not going to divide it fairly or evenly or at all. And I'm going to be left with nothing. My life will be ruined. You see, he thinks this is what his life's all about, is getting this inheritance. Maybe he's been thinking about it for a long time, waiting for his, his poor old dad to die so he can get the inheritance. So he can spend the money the way he chooses. So he can buy the things he wants. And he sees that dematerializing right before him. And so he asks Jesus to settle the score with him, to help him. And so uh, what Jesus does, he, he starts to instruct. He's going to replace ignorance with true knowledge. And that's one of the ways we can help overcome a covetous heart. Uh, an improper assessment of the value of things. That's what he's really going to deal with. See, this man had an overestimation of earthly things and an underestimation of the value of heavenly things. And so he begins to teach him. Teaching brings knowledge. And that's the cure for this ignorance is, first of all, a proper evaluation and assessment of earthly things. Uh, then he gives this parable beginning in verse 16. And he spoke a certain parable to them saying, a ground, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Thomas Manton said that this man is a carnal wretch singing lullabies to his soul. <laughs> and many would say that this man had it made. Oh, did you see what farmer so-and-so, man, he had a bumper crop. Boy, he's building, he's tearing down those perfectly good barns to build bigger ones. He's got it made. Made in the shade, we'd say. And there's no doubt that this man did in a certain in a certain fashion, he would be on the cover of Forbes 500. But notice what God would write on his gravestone. Fool. F-O-O-L. Fool. You fool. And on any man or woman 
who would lay up treasures for themselves and not be rich towards God. And that could include all of us or any one of us. Fool. That's what your life's really all about, isn't it? David calls them in Psalm 17, verse 14, men of the world who have their portion in this life. Stop and think about it. They have their portion in this life. It's like if you're going to divide up something, some goods between uh, a few brothers and, oh, you want this or you want that? Oh, I'll take this and I want this now. And it's here in this life. And really what a small portion it is in reality. The Bible calls it vanity. The wise man in Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities. He says, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, I've quoted a few times already today. He said, the things of the world can no more ease a troubled spirit than a gold cap can cure a headache. <laughs> That's a great illustration, but a beautiful gold cap is not going to take away your headache. And the things of this earth will never, ever truly satisfy. They can be fun and they can be exhilarating. But in the end, and I mean in the very end, you'll, fe you'll understand what the wise man meant when he said vanity of vanities. And you stand before the throne and you have nothing. You'll, un you'll understand what this means, vanity of vanities. Proverbs 23.5 says, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. You can't hang on to them. That's why Paul calls them the uncertainty of riches. Instruct those who are rich in this world not to trust in the uncertainty certainty of riches. They're indeed here today and gone tomorrow. But even if you could keep them secure and have them your entire life, and some people do, you certainly can't take them with you. Uh, I heard of a motorcycle gang, the Hell's Henchmen, when they buried one of their own, they, they do a, quite an ordeal. Uh, it's the first funeral I ever preached uh, when I came to Rockford, and the the funeral director was driving me to the graveside, and he just knew I was a young preacher, and he was just telling me some stories, and he told me this, the strangest thing he'd ever seen was the Hell's Henchmen, and he said uh, they had us dig the grave, but then beside it they had us dig this larger hole, a large hole, and so when they all got there. They drove his motorcycle right down into the hole. And then they put all this elaborate stuff in them. They, even they go by his casket and, and they'd stuff things in his pocket, whether it's money or drugs or a bottle of whiskey, something of that nature. And they buried him that way. Well, poor fools didn't understand, I guess, that he's not going to drive that motorcycle. And it's rusted and rusted and rusted to pieces right now. And he didn't... Smoke any of the weed, he didn't drink any of the booze. He's dead. 
He couldn't take it with him. We know that. You can't take it with him, but they somehow believe that he might be able to somewhere down in the grave. He'll know it's beside him and that's going to give him some comfort, but it gives none. Not even a bit. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 7, we brought nothing into this world and certainly we can carry nothing out. But then even considering the vanity of this world, they can't even in this life, give us true and lasting joy of the heart. It can't quiet a guilty conscience. It might distract. It might drown out the noise. But it can't give you true peace and comfort in life or in death. They can't save you from death or hell. In 1 John 2.15, we're told not to love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, they can't. The love of the Father isn't in it. What does that mean? Not to love the world. Well, it certainly doesn't mean we can't uh, enjoy things in the world. God's given them. They're gifts. In fact, God's given us these things to enjoy, Paul says to Timothy. Uh, we're to enjoy them with a thankful heart. We're not to despise the world. Though some Christians have thought that the material world is evil. He created these things good, he said. Money itself is not evil. God himself gives riches. And we're to be thankful for them. But the Bible tells us if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. It's a matter of the heart. Is that going to be what we live for? God said to Solomon in Second Chronicles 1.11, when God said He could ask anything you wanted, and He asked for wisdom. He said, because this was in your heart, He said, and you've not asked for riches or wealth or honor in this life or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked for a long life, but you've asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge My people over whom I have made you king. And God said that was good. That was a good request. Much better than asking for these riches and all. We go down to Key West quite a bit. Warren goes down there a lot, too. And, uh, but you go by there. Uh, it's off of Duval Street, I believe. But uh, Or maybe is it on? But there's that house, Ernest Hemingway's house. Uh, you can go through it if you want. I've not been through it. I've walked by it. I've looked up at it and wondered and all. But what a famous man he was. The fame, the fortune. Josh would love those pictures of him with the with the marlin and all the fish and everything. He, what a fisherman. He just looked like he had it all. And why did he kill himself? Why did he kill himself? Suicide. Here's what he said. Life is just a dirty trick. A short journey from nothingness to nothingness. There's no remedy for anything in life. Man's destiny in the universe is like a colony of ants on a burning log. Atheists tell us, oh, you can find meaning in life. No, he was right. If, if there's no God, then that's what we really are. Just a colony of ants on a burning log. But you see, that's because all he had was the things of this earth. There's no God, then there's no purpose. No God then we're a cosmic accident. It doesn't matter. Nothing ultimately matters. You can try to invent some kind of morality out of all of that, but it's not there. 
It's a make-believe morality. It's a wishful thinking. There's nothing. It's empty. And a thinking man sadly comes to the same conclusion. Life's a dirty trick. So we need to have a proper evaluation and assessment of early earthly things. They're nothing in and of themselves. It's only when we understand and believe in God that any of it has any meaning or we can truly enjoy the things that God has given us. So we have to have a, a, a proper evaluation and assessment of earthly things. We have to have a, a proper assessment and affection for spiritual things. This is what Paul continually says in his epistles. He says to the Corinthians that we go through a lot of suffering, a lot of things happen to us, but we don't lose heart. I mean, here, here's, here's Ernest Hemingway with everything. Here's Paul sitting in a dungeon. <laughs> and yet he says, we don't lose heart. Ernest Hemingway lost heart. Paul said, we don't lose heart even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, and the things which are not seen are eternal. He had a proper evaluation of spiritual things. So we need to replace ignorance with true knowledge. What this world is really all about and what spiritual things are really all about. And then we need to replace mistrust with faith. Because discontentment, covetousness, is really a distrust of God's goodness of His wisdom, of His power, of His sovereignty. In Luke 12, Jesus was seeking to cure the anxious, covetous heart. He goes on in verse 22, in the same passage, He says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or worry about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. And then he says, consider the ravens. They don't sow nor reap, which they have neither storehouse nor a barn, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And he goes on to keep saying this about, you have a heavenly Father. <laughs> he knows your needs. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's best for you. He knows what you need and what you don't need. points out the general love and care of God over all of His creatures. And He says, aren't you of more value than they? Look what your Heavenly Father has done for you. As a Christian, look what He's done for you. Paul tells us that He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Why, He's adopted you into His family. He's forgiven your sins. You have an inheritance waiting for you. You have His protection, your care, His constant care. He didn't spare His own Son for you, but He delivered Him up for you. How will He not also with, you give, with Him give you all things freely? In Hebrews 13, 5, 
passage I quoted a minute ago. He said, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have God. The portion in this life that the wicked have, oh, did you see my car? Did you see my boat? Did you see my house? Did you see my beautiful wife? Did you see all these things? That shrivels down to nothing. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His wonder and grace. What God has in store for those, no eye has seen nor ear heard. What God has prepared for those who know and love Him. And in this life, He promises that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so we must learn to trust Him and be satisfied with Him alone. To be satisfied with God, knowing Him, the true and the living God. People satisfied because they know big people in high places. But you know the true and the living God and Jesus Christ, His Son, whom He sent. So you need to replace mistrust with faith. You need to replace pride with humility. I said pride is one of those sins that clusters around a covetous heart. Pride. Pride says that we deserve more than we have. Again, Thomas Manton said, prescribing to God always comes from ascribing to ourselves. We think that we have deserved more than He gives. We are worthy of the, we that are worthy of the heaviest judgment surely should be thankful for the smallest mercy. And again, it's not the smallest mercies that He gives us. (laughs) He gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's why Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3, set not your affections on things on the earth, but things in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections there where He is. Replace pride with humility. Understand that you deserve nothing. (laughs) So everything you receive you received it as an act of mercy and grace. Don't be high-minded thinking you deserve more than you have. If He took everything away from you, as Job, I brought nothing into the world, I'll take nothing out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To have that kind of faith and humility. And then replace selfishness with selflessness. That's another one of the sins that clusters around Covetousness. Selfishness. You see, the flip side of these commandments, the last six of the Ten Commandments, is what? They're all stated negatively, except the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother, but the others don't steal, don't lie, don't murder, don't covet, and so forth. What's the flip side of that? Love your neighbor as yourself. So the opposite of covetous and wanting what they have is wanting the best for them. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Charles Kingsley said, if you wish to be miserable, think about yourself. (laughs) What you want. About what you like. 
what respect people ought to pay to you. And then to you, nothing will be pure. You will spoil everything you touch. You will make misery. You will make misery for yourself out of everything good. And you'll be as wretched as you choose. You see, Paul says, love does not envy. Envy, wanting what others have. Love does not seek its own. Not looking for what it can do for me. Uh, that's why people are so uncomfortable in church. They won't go to church and they say, you know, nothing for me. What's in it for me? What's for me? You ought to go to a church and want to be something for others. Lord, help me to be a blessing to the people here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.24, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. If we would learn that, we wouldn't be covetous. You see, you wouldn't look at someone and, and despise that they have more than you. You'd be glad they have more than you. It's like we never feel covetousness towards our children. At least I hope we don't. Uh, do you do you want your children to prosper? Yes. You want them to have a good job and have a good house. You want I mean, you want them to prosper spiritually. That's the priority. But in other ways too, you you're never glad if your children fail. You want them to prosper. You want them to do well because you love them. That's the way it ought to be with others. We love them and we want the best for them. You see someone prospering and they're moving up in the world or they, 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 they got a good job and you ought to rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You see, that's a selfless life. You don't say, oh, well, how come I never get it? Or, or someone is praised. You, you're thankful for that. You don't say, well, why am I never praised? It just happens in churches where someone has moved up and, oh, another, why isn't that me? Why didn't they ask me? Why didn't they always want me, me, me? When you should rejoice in each other's well-being. Paul says in Philippians 2.4, Let each of you look out not for his own interests, but for the interests of others. So we should replace selfishness with selflessness. And then finally, prayer. We need to pray. Because covetousness is an ever-present danger. It's an ever-present danger because of two things. Our hearts are so sinful and inclined to covetousness. And the vast opportunities that abound for covetousness. Uh, I was talking with Pastor Huber after the service and just reminded me that more than ever, we're bombarded everywhere we go with ads. You need this. You need that. More of this. Oh, you'll be happier if you have this. You'll be happier if you have that. If you get a new iPhone. If, if you got the latest. If you got this game. If you've done that. Everything's more, more, more. We're bombarded with it. But the real problem is that our sinful hearts are inclined to covetousness. I don't know. If, I haven't mentioned this movie in a long time. Mark will laugh at me, but the gods must be crazy. <laughs> Mark thinks I'm crazy that I like that movie. But uh, if you've never seen it, it's quite an interesting movie. It's some tribe uh, in, in Africa somewhere, and it's uh, uh, they do that chirping. 
and they uh, clucking or chirping or something like that, how they talk. But this is remote tribe. You know, people are just doing their thing, going about their day, doing their daily routines. Everybody seems to be relatively happy and so forth until one day a, a plane flies over. I think it's just one of those single-engine plane flies over and the pilot's just drinking a Coke and throws it out the window and it lands near the this tribe. And someone finds the Coke bottle. They've never seen a Coke bottle. And then they start passing it around, showing you. And then they start using it for different things. And one blows on it, makes a little noise. Another pounds it to get the grain down. They use it for all kinds of things. And now everybody wants this Coke bottle. And then pretty soon it causes the whole tribe to start fighting. Because their covetous heart is there. They, they want what the other one has. And it got to be so bad, the one man in the tribe decides he's going to take it and throw it off the end of the world. So he makes his journey to go get rid of this, this menace to their tribe. But you see, it's the, it's the sinful heart. Our hearts are inclined to covetousness and the opportunities abound. That's why we must pray. The Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's why we must give ourselves a serious prayer about this. In Psalm 119.36, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Thomas Watson said, Lord, let the lodestone of thy spirit draw my heart upward. Lord, dig the earth out of my heart. Teach me how to possess the world and not love it. How to hold it in my hand and not let it hold, let, not let it get into my heart. But we need to pray that God will give us that strength. There's no one, two, three, do this and you'll be fine. We need to cry out to the Lord who alone can subdue our hearts. There's a prayer that A.W. Tozer has at the end of his chapters in this book, uh, The Pursuit of God. This one prayer always stuck with me. It's a chapter on the blessedness of possessing nothing. And I'll end with this. He says, Father, I want to know Thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And I do not try to hide from Thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that thou mayest enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shalt thou make the place of thy feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need for the sun to shine in it, for thyself will be the light of it, and there shall be no night there. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray.